Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, June the 27th, 2023. And now for something I hope or I think a little bit different. We've been having some rather serious conversations these days. We had one last week about rich white men. Some character came on the show saying we need to get rid of all rich white men. Of course, you would include myself. And then earlier um, today, I did a show with a journalist, or at least he called himself a journalist, David Newert, uh, The Age of Insurrection, in which he suggested that all over rural America, people want to rebel against democracy. It's very odd. And uh, it suggests that people believe in all sorts of weird things. Of course, we could find it on the other side of the political divide, too. My guest today is a serious comedian or a comic serious fellow. His name is Dan Schreiber, and he's the author of an interesting new book or a funny, absurd new book, The Theory of everything else. It was out in the UK in October, and it's just come out here. And he's joining us from another rather comic place, South London, near Crystal Palace. Dan, congratulations on the new book. Thank you. Yeah, very different to the last two books you've done. Yeah, very different, although maybe you can make sense of them. Um, I guess it's not so new. Why did it come out in the US after the UK? Usually it goes the other way around. I don't actually know that. Yeah, that was just a decision by the publishers. Um, so I just had to I had to go with that. So a theory of everything else, does it suggest that all theories are equal, Dan, that some are more absurd than others, or that we should believe in everything, even the most absurd ideas? No, I think it's more that it's just, you know, everything's a mystery, right? We still don't understand basic things like why when you're in the shower, a shower curtain billows in towards you. There's four theories competing against each other for full, you know, proof of why it does that. But no one, no one properly knows. And so when you think there's so much that there is still to discover with so many people pushing their ideas... And that's just not even the world of science. Basically, everyone on my street has a theory about something. And I just quite like that. I quite like that we're all detectives, that we're subtly working on our own thing, and usually on behalf of everyone else on this planet. And some of those things are incredibly funny. And when they are funny and interesting, then you've got a real winner, in my mind. Why do we search for theories? Why do we want to make sense of the world? Well, because it's mad what's going on. We're in this empty universe so far as we can see. We're conscious. We're, as far as we know, the only conscious life uh, that communicates in the ways that we do. We're actively observing the universe for it. I, I think we just want to work out what the hell's going on. We're being told that there's an afterlife. We're being told that ghosts exist, that UFOs are visiting, and, and we're just bombarded with different theories all the time. And usually we're just looking for the one that gives us comfort, I think. Looking for ones that give us comfort, theory of everything else. Does that mean that science itself, Dan, is just another comfort food? Well, I don't know, because science you can replicate. So at least, you know, if it turns out that science is completely wrong, at least there was a genuine 
theory behind why we should believe it. The replication of a, of a thing is you can say this will fall when I drop it or whatever, but you can't always say this ghost is going to rock up at 3.40 p.m. every single day. If you could do that, then we'd probably believe that stuff. So I don't know. You know, it, it might turn out in in a thousand years time that we're looked on as people who believe the cult of science. I, I'm happy to be in that cult in this current day. It's the most sensible one. And it's it looks out for people, in, except obviously when it's used uh, in bad ways. And yet scientists are odd. Uh, in your book, you feature a Nobel Prize winning scientist who believed that he was um, abducted into a spaceship by an English speaking glowing raccoon. Tell me about that scientist. Well, this is Carrie Mullis. Have you ever heard of Carrie Mullis, the inventor no. of PCR? Okay, it's fascinating. And what, is even, what is a PCR? Oh, well, PCR is PCR tests that we use during the pandemic basically were responsible for curbing the disease and saving oh, okay, the people. Yeah. Now, I, now I know that, yeah. Yeah, so PCR, but PCR tests is just a version of what he invented, PCR, which was an absolute game changer when he invented it. Uh, it basically is now used by police for forensics that mean that their accuracy is of a level that has never been before achieved. In archaeology, it's used for when you're they're trying to find out whose bones uh, and, you know, might belong to a king or whatever, like the, the archaeology usages of PCR, the forensic, the scientific, it's absolutely changed the world. And then it continued to do that when the pandemic hit. And it all came from the brain of one guy called Carrie Mullis, who was an extremely questionable human. Um, he won the Nobel Prize for this thing, but everything else in his life was absolutely mad. He he used to do astral projections. He he was a HIV to AIDS denier, which, you know, you know, he saved a lot of lives with PCR during the pandemic. But he also, I bet, was the cause for a lot of deaths when dictators in Africa were saying, look, this Nobel Prize winner believes that AIDS isn't caused by HIV. Therefore, we don't need to hand out medicine. And so hugely controversial character, but changed the world at the same time. Why, um, Dan, do more and more people believe in spaceships and other alien creatures of one kind or another? We make movies about it. We do books. Mm. Um, maybe it's true. I mean, we've had people on the show talking about the likelihood of, li of life elsewhere. Clearly, this guy, the PCR guy, was a bit odd. But is there something reasonable, rational about imagining the sky being inhabited by all sorts of odd spaceships and space creatures? I think, well, there's two steps. One, one is that we're being visited by aliens is the big leap that I find a lot of people are hard to go with because you do want absolute evidence. But the idea that life exists in the universe, I mean, it's an infinitely large universe. It has to. Surely, surely. this. I mean, if we are the only life in the universe, that is extraordinary and all the more important that we care about it. But, uh, I mean, it goes without saying, I think, for me, absolutely, there's going to be multiple civilizations out there. Who knows at what level they're at, if they're amoeba level or if they're super, super brains. But are they visiting? I mean, I've never, I've personally never seen enough proof from any case to, to make me think that. Dan, what do you make, and I know you cover this in the book and you've done some thinking about it, what do you make of these quote-unquote philosophers, and we've had them on the show, who believe that life itself is a simulation, it's a big computer game, and they're all, we're all participating in 
something that um, uh, isn't really happening or what is really happening is very different from the way most of us think about the nature of things. Yeah, well, it's not even just philosophers. There's a lot of serious scientists who are trying to actively use physics to prove that we are in some sort of matrix. Um, I love, you know, it's a fun idea and we don't know what is going on. So it's another great idea to throw into the mix and it might lead to a different discovery. I think that's what I really like about all these people who think differently is maybe they start on one idea and then they end up somewhere else. You know, the, the guy who invented phosphorus, which we ended up using for matches and lighting and all that sort of stuff, he only invented it by accident. What he was really doing was collecting, collecting buckets of urine, which he was keeping in his basement because he wanted to try and turn it into gold through alchemy. And he accidentally came up with this other thing. So, you know, we're going to try and have scientists and philosophers look into how we can break out of this video simulation. And they might end up coming up with something even more extraordinary, an unintended consequence. And for me, I think that's why that's why it's fun. There's a guy called David Eagleman. He's a, he's a really great scientist, neuroscientist, um, quite a popular neuroscientist uh, for a lot of his um, talks and so on. And he came up with a religion, which is called possibilianism. And the idea is that anything is possible. So don't discount anything. You know, when we when we bracketed what's going on down to about six or seven ideas, be it like religious ideas or the Big Bang and all that, he's saying, well, that's just six or 12 out of a billion different ideas. Possibilian opened your mind up to everything. I quite like that because I guess I don't have any clue what's going on. I don't ever pretend to have an idea of what's going on. I just, as I say, I kind of just find a lot of these ideas make me think differently and make me laugh. Is that what you mean by the importance of being a little bit batshit, that we should all do that? It would allow us to be, ironically, a little bit more sane? Yeah, I, I think so. I think we keep brushing off or brushing under the carpet people's, people's weird beliefs because we think you might lose your job over it or you might just, you know, hurt your social life in some sort of way if you say, oh, I do believe in ghosts or whatever. And I do think that actually when you and this was kind of the starting point of the book was uh, through years of doing research here in the UK for the jobs that I do that everyone seemingly has a bit of weirdness about them. I don't, I don't think I found a single historical character who I couldn't tell you what their little bit of weirdness was. I won't, I won't probably be able to do it off the top of my head if you start throwing names out, but I guarantee that if I looked into it, I could come back to you and say, hey, look at this. You know, like Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison used to sleep in his work clothes because he had a theory that insomnia was brought about by changing into pajamas. By taking off your work clothes, you would physically change the chemicals of your body, which would make you an insomniac and keep you up at night. So he used to get in bed every single night. And this is a guy who worked in a factory with all sorts of dust and fumes and chemicals, hopping into bed next to his wife, who would choke in bed and eventually, you know, give him insomnia because she would kick him out of the bed um, and make him sleep in another room. But that was a belief by Edison, who you would think didn't harbor any of that kind of stuff, was a real rational scientist. And I love that because it's we all have it. I mean, do you know what yours is? Do you know what your little bit of batshit might be? Uh, my, well, one piece of batshit might be that I went to school with the son of Ringo Starr. And you <laughs> that um, my claim to fame or my claim to non-fame, um, that you've got something in the book about 
or you've given some thought to the exorcism of Ringo Starr. Was it Ringo who was weird or batshit, or were the people who thinking about Ringo who were bad? I think Ringo is quite a normal character. He does think that he's seen John Lennon a few times, the ghost of John Lennon in rooms. All well, that's the Beatles. quite possible, isn't it? We all have. Yeah, exactly. Everyone's seen the ghost of John Lennon. Um, so that's that's normal. But in this case, it's his grandmother. His grandmother was a sort of a uh, like to do lots of potions and all sorts of weird ointments where she lived in Liverpool. And she had a nickname locally, which was the voodoo queen of Liverpool. And she believed when Ringo was growing up that Ringo was possessed by the devil to an extent uh, or witches because he was left handed. And this used to happen in a lot of British schools. I don't know if it happened in America or anywhere else in the world, but a lot of kids were talked or or beat, physically beaten out of being left-handed to become right-handed because that was seen as a sign of the devil. And Ringo's grandmother thought exactly the same thing. And so she performed these multiple exorcisms on him to get the devil out of him. He, he did looks be- as if he's been exorcised. I mean, yeah. <laughs> He's, he's, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, after writing this book, I'm so in love with Ringo. I realize that he's the Beatle that everyone should want to be. He's had the most incredible, wonderful life as a result of not having to be the front person. Right. He always looks, when you see him in that recent movie about the, the making of their last album, he always looks as if he's amazed to actually be there. Yeah, exactly. Which he's just had, I mean, he's a super, he is a super talented guy, but he was unfortunately surrounded by what might be three of the greatest musicians that period produced. And so someone's always got to come in fourth. But as a result, you know, he he had the first number one album after they all broke up. He spent a lifetime of just collaborating with his best friends who were the top musicians in the world who'd all write songs for him. He was in movies. He married a Bond girl. He just had a great life yeah, and still continues to. Yeah, thinking about it, it's good to be fourth out of four. What's really bad is to be third. Harrison was a very, <laughs> very sad case of someone feeling so bad about themselves because they weren't number one or number two, taking it for granted he should have been, whereas Ringo just accepted he was number four and that was the end of it. Yeah, true. But then, I, you know, he, George did find his own pocket with the sort of spiritual side of things. I think he led it's an odd pocket, wasn't it? <laughs> well, not at the time. At the time, it was a really, you know, the counterculture yeah. of America with Ram Das and Timothy Leary and Alan Watts and all that, which I think is one of the most fascinating bits of Californian history, that whole Big Sur. Yeah. Um, I, I would kill if I had a time machine to to book a trip there during the... Well, you just need to go the on the 60s. internet. It resulted in the internet. You mentioned education. You've got some stuff on Rudolf Steiner. I thing i we made the mistake of sending both my children to steiner school who oh, did you right. explains probably why they're so weird how important <laughs> is education in all this in your theory of everything else why does didn't it, does it sort of undermine the whole purpose of education what what's that to to have well, given that everyone needs to be batshit and weird and counterintuitive and all the rest of it does it suggest that we probably shouldn't go to school or school should be quite different like perhaps steiner suggested well, I, I had a good time at Steiner, but I have not come out as an academic person. I What I'm kind of good at, I think, is my best best possible thing I could possibly say about my, my sort of intelligence is that I can remember things and I can write them down and I can tell stories. But I, I can't fully, you know, if I had to explain what PCR actually is to you, I can't do that. My brain just can't do that. And I think Steiner was a school that had a very 
uh, liberal creative side to it. But if you decided to get lazy and not turn your brain towards the things that other schools would try to train you in, uh, they would be fine with that. I think as a result, I have a very lazy brain from that school. But I also did get a weird confidence about just going off and saying, well, I guess some people will probably accept that this is the level of thinking that I do. And maybe I can still do what I want to do in life. And fortunately, uh, that has worked out for me so far. Because I do work in factual information, yet I, you know, I barely graduated high school. I didn't go to university. And largely, I mean, this book is about facts with air quotes. It's, it's not a book that's about solid facts. And that's the pocket that I sit in. Um, I think education is hugely important. I think there needs to be a way of making sure that education takes in the rest of the planet's view of thinking and isn't so... Uh, just uh, just focusing down one single lane. Because that, you know, I, I grew up in Hong Kong um, and I was born and raised there until I was 13. And I had what was the most wonderfully multicultural upbringing. You know, every other night, if I went to a friend's house after school, I was sitting in a room that was just a completely alien culture to the one that I knew, but already I was in an alien culture anyway. So it was it was an education in itself every single afternoon to go to a new place. And um, I worry that, and this is the thing, that uh, there's this amazing guy called Wade Davis. He's a sort of National Geographic explorer, written a lot of amazing books. And he has this point, which he says that one thing we've not noticed as part of our conquering of the planet, the Western countries going out and taking over all of these different cultures around the world and teaching them English and teaching them science, uh, is that we've we've not noticed one thing that we're going to probably be remembered for amongst you know the destruction of the planet itself is the destruction of the ethnosphere, which is the the diversity of human thought on our planet. Because every time we go into a culture and we knock out their thinking by putting in our sort of like more rational thinking, we're knocking out all the whole history of a people who've worked out how to function on this planet and a relationship with the planet. And that stuff is hugely important. A diversity of thought about how life itself functions, I think is really, really important. And that's being killed. And I think I, so my issue possibly with academic schools is maybe they need to open up a bit more to let the batshit in. And the batshit isn't always going to be like talk about ghosts and ufos i think it is talking about how certain people see the planet or the, you know that kind of territory and not laugh at it and think okay well they get on you know they claim they can they can hear plants singing well let's just let's find out what that actually means because can they are we yeah. missing out on an ability here i don't know but it's interesting anthropologically that's so interesting yeah and i think you've touched on the next big thing or it's actually the current big thing i think in academia which is the cult of indigenous cultures i'm not sure if you're doing yourself justice though dan i think one reason for your originality is that and i'm very envious of you here um both of your parents were celebrity hairdressers how did well, you manage that one yeah well i didn't i, I you know it just happened before i got there you didn't uh, organize that one you didn't say I didn't get them to quit existing jobs. And nah, yeah, I wonder what they think of your hairstyle now. Are they still yeah. around? Well, I, they are. Uh, I'm very rebellious, as you can see. It's, can uh, it's not a good look. Um, they, yeah, they're, they're both, my mom's an Aussie. Sorry, my dad's an Aussie. My mom's a British um, hairdresser. And they both met and moved to Hong Kong and became 
celebrity hairdressers to basically the Asian uh, TV and movie world. Jackie Chan and Michelle Yao and all that used to be their clients. And yeah, it was a uh, it's like what was that like having parents who were celebrity hairdressers. Well, you don't really know that they're celebrity hairdressers at the time because you have no clue who all these people are. I occasionally met like a Western celebrity when they came in. My dad did Ringo's beard, for example. Oh, he did? So that explains the Ringo obsession. There you go. The huge Ringo obsession down to my dad meeting them. Um, I think my dad did the Pet Shop Boys at one point. I think he did. My mom did Barbara Bush's hair at one point when she wow. came to Hong Kong. And um, she she has quite a head, or she had quite a head. She it? did, yeah, exactly. I think I think she, my mum, just blow dried her hair, which is a hell of a blow drying job as well, because she did have a very. She probably had to. She had to uh, appropriate all the all the energy in Hong Kong to do that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, the grid could not handle it. So yeah, I mean, you know that that was a great upbringing, growing up in salons and just listening to people chat, because the whole place is just conversation, and so. Yeah, just sitting at the foot of a stool as they were getting their hair you cut. Think of yourself. I mean, you, you you've become pretty successful. In addition to the book, you you've done a lot of other things. Um, you've got this thing, We Can Be Weirdos, uh, a, a podcast, and all sorts of other things. A lot of BBC shows. Do you think of yourself as a comic? Are you a comedian, or are you um, are you just batshit? I think that um. Yeah, maybe as I'm getting older, I'm realizing there's a bit more batshit uh, that I'm interested in as as a career. But as ever since I've been a kid, I've just loved comedy. So no matter what I do, it has to have an element of funny in it because I just think being around funny people is the best feeling in the world. Laughing is the is the best thing you can do. Make someone laugh. Get someone to make you laugh. I I I don't I'm hesitant these days to say comedian because I think comedians deserve the sort of respect of the fact that they're on stage every night going across country and living out of hotels and people's houses and stuff and and I used to do stand up a lot and now I only very occasionally do it and I think so more and more I I, I podcasting is largely my thing the show I do in the UK no such thing as a fish we've been doing it for nine years it's the most listened to show in the UK that's, yeah, I saw that's... That. I'm very envious and I'm gonna have to learn from you I'm the least <laughs> listened show in the universe yeah. <laughs> right at the other end of the league table right, the wow. bottom, right at the top nice that we got together then to sort well, of just I was just trying the... to jump on your coattails but I don't think you have any coattails right <laughs> no unfortunately not <laughs> Um, when it comes to comedy, you tweet quite often about your kids suggesting that um, you buy things supposedly for them, but really for yourself. I wonder, oh, right. I wonder whether you could have been a bit kinder, though, with their names. How did you end up naming them Wilf, Ted and Kit? That sounds fictional. The kinds of kind of names of children of celebrity hairdressers. Well, that's that's the that's the reason for it. The, the name Wilf was my wife's obsession. I was actually quite anti Wilfred to begin with because it just sounded so British to me. It sounded so World War Two British, and I just thought, I, you know, growing up in Hong Kong, I had a very American influence. Well, in Crystal Palace, the, the great Crystal Palace players, Wilf Zaha. So probably they thought, yeah, you him after Zaha. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I I I don't follow football close enough to have known that at the time uh, when we named him. So. So that, that was a cool surprise because as he's getting older, you know, we are going to have to pick a football team. And that does feel like a good reason to go for Crystal Palace. Um, 
the name and the location, obviously, of where we where we're living. But um, yeah, then Ted. I don't know. Ted's a normal one. I think Ted's more in the yeah. Zone they named the whole content thing. You know, the Ted Show. So oh yeah, exactly. And that again is not a that's not a nod to that. I mean, Ted. I think was. We found it really hard thinking of boys' names. I was always in, I'm more into the middle name. So like Ted's middle name is Harpo. He's Ted Harpo Schreiber. Oh my and god! That's, that's now that's, now you're expecting big things of him, right? <laughs> well, he he's got Harpo energy. Definitely, he is an absolute chaotic human who also then plays the sweet side, like Harpo would play the harp. Um, he's got the perfect mix there. So maybe I've accidentally given a sort of nominative determinism name to him and his personality. Uh, but yeah. Um, and then Kit. Yeah. I mean, we just ran out of names. That's, that's what it was. Yeah. That's the last name. When you, when you bring in your kids up, I know you believe that Believing in the impossible from poltergeist to the Loch Ness Monster is good for you. Do you encourage them to imagine, for example, that the Loch Ness Monster is real? Or yeah. that poltergeist under the bed or aliens are about to visit us from outer space? Yeah, definitely. I, but what I say is, is that I sort of say, I don't know. What do you reckon? Do you reckon it's real? It could be. Like, I, I never give a definitive version to it and because at their age there's so many uh, wolf is five and ted is three so they're and ted's trying to be as old as as wolf in terms of asking big questions but so many things that i didn't realize you come across as these big sort of almost existential questions because like you told it's basically is there a heaven and is santa claus real are the two biggies but we'll watch movies like um avengers and they'll be going, this is real, right? And I don't know what to say because I don't know if I should be explaining what the concept of a movie is to them or whether or not it's just this should be fun and you should for a while think that this is real. And it's very confusing when Chris Pratt will suddenly turn up in Jurassic Park or Robert Downey Jr. will be in another movie and Dr. Doolittle. And they're going, what? what's Iron Man doing here? And I, I don't know the answer, but... With, so I just keep it open ended and just go, yeah. What is he doing there? What? Yeah, is that is there a monster? No, I always uh, my my thing with my daughter in particular, who's a bit older than your kids, and she always takes me to these Iron Man superhero movies. I always have the same line after. I always say to her, "Was that based on a true story?" And now <laughs> she gets she doesn't even respond. <laughs> well, that's that's where I'm going to get to as a dad. I think eventually. Uh, you're a better, I can tell you're a much better father than me. Finally, um, I know you talk about the big unsolved mystery in all seriousness, um, Dan, uh, although this is, has been a healthily serious conversation. What mystery would you like to solve? What is the biggest unsolved mystery in the world, do you think? Mm, well, for me personally, I... I'm I'm one of those people that is scared of death. I'm I'm scared not not like of dying. I it's more the lack of consciousness on the other side and that's the big thing that I would love to know if if there is something where you have a consciousness that is the consciousness of the being that you are right now transfers into the next bit because I I I like I like living, I like thinking, I like I like catching up on everything with the families that I have, with the books that I'm reading, the author's next book. I I don't want the party to end. And so for me personally, that's the big one. It does the party go on. 
I would love that it does, but I am on the side that it doesn't. And it annoys me that I can't just transfer even just my thinking, even if it's not true, just to believe it while I'm alive. I'm so envious of people who believe that there's more afterwards because they get to go through the life believing that. And if there is nothing, it does nothing to them. There's no consequence whatsoever. Yet my stupid brain just can't accept that there's a possibility of, of any kind of life beyond. And so, yeah, that's that's a very annoying thing for me. And in terms of this nothingness, uh, is there really nothingness in nothingness, do you think? Mm, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Because, like, you know, it, what, this is what I need. I need someone to sort of really explain to me that, like, well, energy is always something. So you are always a something. If, if I could get my head around that, which sounds like the, the best philosophical position to be in, um, then that would be very useful. I just haven't. And I've been trying. I've been reading Alan Watts, a lot of him. It's not. It's weirdly. It's, you know, you know, it's like when you have kids, you don't really have time to to sort of dedicate yourself now to really thinking about this stuff yeah. unless unless it's your job. So I don't think about this on a day-to-day -day period, but I do occasionally go, oh, let me pick up an Alan Watts book. I'll suddenly feel very zen. What a great feeling. But you only get about 15 minutes of zen in the morning before you're yelling at your kids to eat their food, get changed. What are you doing? Oh my God, get off your brother. It's impossible to be zen with kids. So even attempting to get into that zone is impossible. I guess at their age, you know, three kids, five and under, it's just not going to happen. Zen is not an option. Well, maybe you should invite Ringo Starr onto your No Such Thing as a Fish show. I bet he, he knows what happens after death. Well, yeah. I mean, he's seen John. You know, he's uh, he's got definitely an insight that I don't. So, yeah. I mean, he would be my number one guest, definitely. <laughs>